have a seat real quick, if you would. We want to continue in what we're doing here this evening. We're, we're at probably the highest celebration uh, in the Christian calendar, and it is entirely appropriate that we get together. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus said, as often as you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. And that's one of the things that we want to do. And we don't do it every single Sunday morning, but we always have communion set up. And so this evening, um, we're going to be doing that as well. But we want to take a moment, and we want to stop, and we want to think about... I mean, we celebrate Easter, and even, uh, I don't know if you saw the lilies coming in, and I'm excited about that because I love lilies, and I say this every year when it comes, I love lilies, and um, the staff goes to Costco and buys them out of lilies until they look like they're sick with lilies, um, and so more will show up on Sunday morning than what you've seen already. It's, it's just who I am. I like the lilies. It just, it just says Easter to me. But you know, when we're talking about up from the grave he arose and, um, and we're singing those kind of hymns maybe from our past and we're thinking about that, we also have to think about Good Friday. And just for the record, let us all understand that it wasn't Friday, just like Christmas wasn't December 25th, 2,000 years ago. Um, if you stop and do three days, and if you remember that Jews count the day from the evening and then to the morning, and then there was a day. If you don't believe me, go ahead and open the book of uh, Genesis, and you will see that it says there was evening, there was day, and there was the first day. There was evening, there was day, and there was the first day. So the Sabbath, for instance, starts as it's on Saturday, right? Yes, because it starts at 6 o'clock on Friday and runs till 6 o'clock on Saturday night. That's Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And so if we count three days back and we need Jesus to be in the grave for three days because he was raised from the dead on the fourth day, then we recognize that if he's in the tomb four days, Jewish life and culture 2,000 years ago says he was surely dead. He didn't just bump his head and fall asleep. You want proof of that too? How long was Lazarus sick and dead before Jesus went to find him? Four days. We had to count him dead if the miracle was going to be a miracle that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So he shows up and they're like, Lord, don't roll the stone away. He's been in there four days. Everything was four days. And so we see that that was going on, but that's okay. We also recognize there was a Sabbath, and then I think one of the Gospels records there was a special Sabbath, so those days kind of get a little convoluted when you just want to do a, a cursory reading through it, but there it is. And I wonder, when we start talking about the Easter story, we start talking about the beating that Jesus took. Maybe you've seen The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, and, and that gives you a picture of it. Maybe you were expecting a couple of photographs of that up here so that we could kind of wrap our heads around the gruesomeness of what he went through. And listen to me, I do not want to uh, underestimate what Jesus endured on my behalf. If you stop and think about the fact the Son of God was beaten for everybody's sin, that's what, that's what we read. Um, Jesse led us in that reading from Isaiah 53, that in all of our, our, our sin, all of the punishment for our sin was on him. The beating that he took was not enough, in my opinion. Not, not that he needed to be beat more, but that we should have been beaten more than he was. And here he was perfect without fault. And he took that for us. And he said it was enough. He said it is finished. He said 
that kind of thing. And so we stop and we think about the moments that Jesus was with his disciples and they were in the upper room and he desired to eat this meal with them before he left the planet and, and uh, went through everything that he had to go through. And so we're talking about that. And so tonight, with that on our hearts, I wonder what part of the Easter story do you think about when Good Friday comes or Good Wednesday? What do you think about? Do you think about Jesus being there eating the Passover with his disciples? Do you think about Jesus taking up a towel and wrapping it around his waist and going down and washing each of their feet as, as, as a sign of servitude to them to remind that he, that he came to, uh, to serve and not to be served? That though he was the king of the universe, he came down here as a lowly shepherd of you and I as his sheep? Do you recognize that? Do you recognize everybody laying around the table? Because that's how they would have done. Maybe up on one elbow, maybe with some pillows propped underneath, up, um, underneath an arm. And so Jesus would have been here, and John would have had his, his head almost on Jesus' hip, so he could just look up and talk to him. And that's just, that's just contemporarily the way they did things. They didn't go to Walmart and get a table and put chairs around it and do stuff like that. They laid on pillows around the floor with a little table in front of them, and they ate, and they talked, and they visited. Do you think about um, um, one of the disciples saying, hey, John, when Jesus keeps talking about somebody who's going to betray him, ask him who he's talking about. Do you think about that? Do you think about he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Do you think about there was a room that was prepared for him to use? And wow, that kind of felt like spiritual magic or heavenly magic that was already prepared for him. There's things that we don't know that we can learn later, but it was prepared and he had it rented out, if you will, and it was already there. Tonight, I want, to, I want to talk about a disciple. And so we just say, come Holy Spirit, be upon us. God, we remember what you did, and, and, and we can only try to, to conceive or understand what it is you went through. It, it would be a grueling 12 or 14 hours for you in those times, Lord, and, and we can't conceive it. But Holy Spirit, we still need you here like our Jesus said, to remind us of what you did. But more than that, to teach us the things that we need to know, to unravel for us the mysteries of heaven that are at our disposal. And so we just invite you to come. Tonight I want to talk about a man named Judas. See, on the night that he was arrested, Jesus did eat the Passover with his disciples. And while he was doing that, Jesus said that he was going to be betrayed by somebody that he gave this bread to. And I don't know why, unless it was that he picked 11 really dumb people to follow him around and be his disciples. But he said, it's the person to whom I give this to. When he dips it in the cup and he turns around and he hands it to Judas, who in my estimation, and it's just an estimation, with John laying right here so he could talk to him, Judas would have been right there, or vice versa, however those positions of, of uh, honor were. He would, the scripture says, and he gave it to Judas. And why didn't everybody stand up and say, it's you? I don't understand that. Understand how, it, well, and some, some theologians and some pastors will say, well, he broke one off and dipped it and gave one to everybody, but, you know, as soon as he gave it to Judas, um, there it was. But it's there, and I don't understand. I don't understand. But John 13, 27 records this. As soon as he gave Judas the bread, it says, Satan entered him and took control of him. 
As soon as he gave that bread to Judas, the scripture says Satan entered Judas and took control of him. Honestly, Judas didn't appear to buy into Jesus' deity at this point. There was nothing about Judas' interaction. As a matter of fact, this is, this is the most that Judas has ever talked about in all reality is in this part of the story. We don't hear much about him at all. But even here, and as this unfolds, and I'm going to read the scripture for you, it would appear that Judas didn't buy it yet. He wasn't sold on what was going on, regardless of what it is that he had seen. As a matter of fact, Jesus plotted, if you will, against Jesus, but for the money. I don't know where Judas was when Jesus said, come follow me, but G uh, Judas, and I'm going to confuse these two names, just sure as my name is Joe Wood, okay? But Judas said he appeared to follow Jesus with the understanding that he can give an accounting and therefore let me carry the money back. And John would later say, and he used to dip into it on a pretty regular basis to take care of himself and whatever he wanted to do. And so we recognize that. We know that Judas had seen Jesus walk out of every situation that had ever confronted him to date. There is one point, I believe it's in the book of Luke, where the scripture says that the whole town of people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, took Jesus up on top and on, a, on a hill that overlooked, and they were going to throw him off the hill. And the scripture records this, and he walked through them and left, basically. He just walked away. I fully believe with all of my heart that that's exactly where Judas was in this particular situation. That the idea of selling Jesus out for 30 more pieces of silver that he didn't have to put in that bag and give any account for was just going to be him pointing out Jesus, and then Jesus would walk out from amongst them again. And, and I'll tell you why as it begins to unfold. Judas, I believe, believed that Jesus would not be hurt. Judas had a moment in the presence of God where he realized he had screwed up bad. He had done something heinous. He had done something filthy. He had done something immoral. He had done something borderline illegal. Judas was still wrestling with Satan inside of him when he began to make choices. And that is not a good time. Oppression is what some of you have been going through where the devil harasses you and harasses you and harasses you. When we planted this church 10 years ago, thank you, Jesus, for the first 10 years, but when we planted this church 10 years ago, those of you that call this your church home have heard me say this. The vacuum sweeper broke. The dishwasher broke. The dryer broke. If it plugged into the wall of my house, it broke in about a week and a half period of time. That, that doesn't just happen. After years and years of everything just, we didn't buy it all at the same time. There was no reason for it all to die at the same time. And some of you have been in those situations and some of you are in those situations where you just feel like no matter where you turn, something goes crash and you're crying out and saying, God, could you make this stop, please? I'm telling you, you're being oppressed by the devil. That's oppression. Please get a hold of these terms. That is oppression, where you are harassed and harassed and harassed and chased down and chased down, and you don't have to be afraid of the devil. And I'm not talking about Hollywood's version of the devil. I'm just talking about there's a demon bothering you and your family, you and your friends, you and whatever, and it doesn't seem like no matter what you do, 
The enemy is already there. And you feel it. But that wasn't Judas. Because that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says Satan entered him. Inside. In here. Where the Holy Spirit wants to be. And instead, the devil was there. When you look at the word possession, it's because you're a host. I would dare say for some of the people that were possessed of evil spirits or the devil himself in our scripture, it would be more like an out-of-body experience. Or it would be more like a prison experience where you can't stop what you're doing, but you can see it. Have you ever woken up from a nightmare and you are screaming and your mouth is open and no sound is coming out, but in your dream you are screaming bloody murder? Or you're screaming and screaming and screaming in your dream, but you feel like you're being strangled and the words can't come out because if they could come out, somebody would save you. I can only imagine that that's what possession is like. You know, somebody asked me one time if Judas had a choice on whether or not he would betray Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you right now, give you a little insight. I believe the answer to that is no. I believe there are two people that were created that we can count on it from the Scripture itself that lets us know that they had a part to play in the drama of redemption. One of them was Pharaoh. Believe it or not, Scripture says so. And the other one was Judas. Judas did, however have a choice on how he would respond. He had to play the part of kissing Jesus in the garden. But from that point on, he had choices to make again. And we want to talk about that. Even Judas, Judas had a chance. In Matthew chapter 27, the scripture is going to come up up here. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and the people um, came to a decision to put Jesus to death. This is the, night after, the morning after the night before. You ever had a morning like that? This is the morning after the night before. They had a little wine. They had a little dinner. He had his friends around. He was in essence saying goodbye. He's going to go on a trip. He knew exactly what was coming. He washed their feet. He did great things for them. And then the morning after the night before, because he was arrested that night in the garden, it says early in the morning. And look who all is involved. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to a decision to put Jesus to death. They decided that they were going to kill him. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Jesus, excuse me, when Judas, had, who, had, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was not going to walk out of this, could not get away, did not have a plan, that it was over, and he himself had done it, he was seized with remorse and gave the money back because he knew he had betrayed an innocent man. What is that to us? The leaders replied. The people that bound him up, the people that were going to kill him. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. That was his bad choice. That's what he didn't have to do. It says the chief priests picked up the coins and said, and look at what they said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. 
So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood or Akladama to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And so I want to look at this and I want to say the chief priests and the people decided to kill Jesus. The world has been trying to kill him ever since. Ever since, ever since, the world has been doing its best to push the church down, to shut the church up, to deny Jesus, to deny any uh, remnant of his deity, to deny any testimony of his deity, to put it aside. They have tried to kill people that have literally been healed by Jesus. They tried to kill Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead by Jesus, in front of people's faces. Those same people that saw it wanted Lazarus dead as well. Ever since he outed himself as the Son of God in the book of John, for this reason, the Scripture says, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. From this uh, for this reason, they tried to kill him all the more. All the more means that by John chapter 5, they were already trying to dismiss him. One estimate that I read as I looked up how many people were martyred during the Reformation. Just during the Reformation. People trying to squash the Protestant revival. Said that from the, the year 1100 to the 1500s when the, the uh, Reformation actually took place, it is estimated that 300,000 people per year were martyred. That's 120 million people died just in Europe for their faith at the hands of the church. 120 million people claiming Christianity. Not people who got baptized at seven and said, well, it didn't really matter and lived like the devil. People that were running from the people in charge because they got baptized based upon their belief that Jesus was their Lord and Savior. We are not even talking about non-Christians yet. That's 120 million people that identified with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that was just the Reformation. April 8, 1966, Time Magazine asked the question, Is God dead? It was on the cover. It was there. Everybody got to see it. Everybody was asking that question because a man named Friedrich Nietzsche reported in his article, A Gay Science, God is dead and we have killed him. That's what he wrote. Humanity has killed him. God isn't relevant anymore because we will, not, we will not even live according to the teachings because even the people that are going to church, he was saying, don't, don't live it out. So surely it must not be real. That's what he said. Eugene Ines Ionesco, excuse me, Eugene Ionesco said, God is dead Karl Marx is dead, and I really don't feel so well myself right now. But he also said, the fact that I despise religion does not mean that I don't hold it to a high esteem. So even this man is testifying that there's something going on, but I hate it so much that I'm going to despise it. But man, they're willing to die for it. And it's an amazing thing. Oh, and just for the record, Nitschke, 
if I'm saying that right, stillborn in Roken Churchyard in Lutzen, Germany. Still buried. Still buried. Eugene Ionesco, still buried in Mount Parnasse Cemetery, Paris, France. Still buried. And just for the record, Jesus Christ's tomb is still empty. Still empty. Somebody said not long ago in, a, story, in, a, in a, a message that I was listening to that I didn't think had anything to do with Easter. As a matter of fact, it was Andy Stanley, and he was talking about um, the growth and the birth of the church. And he said, you know what? The Roman Empire attacked the Christian church and killed them on crosses, and there are crosses all over Rome, and there's no Roman Empire. And you and I have accepted the cross as a statement of power over death. And so we see that firsthand... Jesus Christ's tomb is still empty, and firsthand from the day that happened, over 500 persons saw him personally just early on. And the record that you have in the New Testament was written by people who were still alive when it took place, who saw it themselves, who interacted with him themselves, or talked to a person that interacted. It's all firsthand accounts of what was going on. And yet Jesus said it was for this very reason I came. Second thing is that Jesus came, excuse me, Judas came face to face with the reality of his sin. John says in John 17, while I was with them, he's talking to his father, he's praying for his disciples. He says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except, here comes the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. It was understood that that was Judas's role in the drama of redemption. Doomed to destruction means totally destroyed. It was his position. The third thing and the last thing I want to share with you is Jesus express, or excuse me, Judas expressed remorse instead of repentance. The scripture says he was filled with remorse. I don't know about you, but when I'm filled with remorse, I'm like, ah, oh, no, that was a bad decision. I really messed that one up. Oh, this one's going to cost me greatly. Oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to be spending some months fixing this thing. I am, oh, are you kidding? We should not have taken that shortcut. I got a flat tire. I bent a rim. Oh, my word. I drove all around the Walmart looking for the closest parking spot to the front. While I was in there, somebody sideswiped my car. Oh, I'm going to regret that. I'm full of remorse. I'm sorry. I, and I, I, I'm just like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That's remorse. Repentance is, wow, I sinned against you. What I did was wrong. Not a bad idea. It was wrong. And I should not do that. From now on, I should go that way. I should do this instead. And Judas chose remorse. You know how I know? Because he tried to fix it. He tried to make it right, and he went to the wrong people. He should have gone to the church. He should have gone to Peter and said, I did this. What should I do? He should have gone to James and John. He should have gone to Matthew. He should have hollered over to Jesus. He should have said, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Instead, he throws 30 pieces of silver down to the, to the Pharisees, and they say, well, we're not going to put it in the treasury because this is blood money, which indicted them because now they're admitting that that was murder for hire. Legally. But Jesus said it was for this reason that I came. So the people will say that we murdered Jesus, and Jesus will say, I gave you my life. 
Did Judas have a choice? Yes, he did. I think he had to play the part in the drama of redemption, but he had a choice in how he responded. How do you respond? How do you respond? You see, at Easter, I'm thinking about Judas, and I'm thinking Judas was in the upper room. Judas was with Jesus. Judas was with the power. Judas was there. But Judas didn't believe, and Judas didn't have hope, and Judas wasn't laying a hold of the things of the kingdom of God. And honestly, you're in the room with me now, and I wonder as often as we come in here and we call it church and we lift up our voices, are you believing that this is Jesus, that this is the Christ? So much so that you live your life accordingly, that you avoid sin, that you repent of sin, that you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, I was not worthy of what he did on that cross. Because I'm not worthy, he loves me and did it for me. But Judas was in the room. And Jesus loved Judas. Judas was in the room. And Jesus fed Judas. Judas was in the room and Jesus handed him a piece of bread. Judas was in the room and ended up full of Satan. Judas was in the room, but he had no hope. And do you have hope tonight? Do you have hope for healing from a God who spent three and a half years of his life walking around healing people? Do you, is there any place in your heart and your mind that it's just possible that the Holy Spirit still wants to do that kind of thing because we worship a God who is spirit and a God who is spirit should do spiritual things and it should not be um, um, flamboyant and, and, and put up everywhere and turned into conferences. It should just be matter of fact. Do you have hope that God can change your circumstance? Do you have hope that God can save your children? Do you have hope that God can save your life? What happens when you come face to face with God? What happens when you're Judas and you're holding 30 pieces of silver and you're scared to death or you're fearful or you've sinned or you've done something immoral or everybody's going to find out? And so you go and try to make it right so you can keep the door shut on that sin behind you. What happens when you're so afraid of life that you're up in the upper room and you've locked the doors in because the Romans might come and get you? Why do you want to live your life in fear and anxiety? Why? Please don't hear me being very cliche about that. It is a difficult thing in our society. But I'm just telling you, the disciples locked themselves in the upper room because they were scared. Why do we want to live that way? What happens when we come face to face with God? Not with hell. Not when we come face to face with fire. Not when we come face to face with damnation. What happens when we come face to face with love that puts itself on that cross for me? How can I sell him out? 30 pieces of silver how can I do that on a daily basis how can I decide it's okay to step over the line over and over and over how can I say it's okay to water this bitter root inside of my heart and help it to grow a little bit rather than let God do the work of reaching in and ripping it 
out, even when it hurts, because he loves us. Not for hellfire and damnation, for love. When you come face to face with a God that loves you so much that he took your punishment for your sin, and you realize you've had much sin, then I hope we have enough sense to realize we have much to be thankful for because we're in the room. He's feeding us. He's counted us as a disciple. At some point, he said, you come follow me. And he's not looking for another Judas to play a role. He's looking for children to come home. And you're chosen. What happens when you read the scripture this way? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever follows his teaching, believing that his interpretation of the law is correct and that he is God himself, shall not die but live eternally in a new heaven and a new earth with God our Father. For God did not send this Jesus into the world to condemn this world because he was mad. No, he was coming down here to show us how to live in love, in justice, and in righteousness, as well as how to die so we could establish it into our rightful place. We could be established into our rightful place as children of God. Not here on this planet forever, but welcomed home. Judas came face to face with his sins. Jesus came face to face with Judas. Judas made a bad decision concerning his remorse and his repentance. Jesus made a way for us all, even for Judas. You have not sinned so much that the sacrifice of God cannot forgive you. You have not run so far that the love of God cannot find you and will not welcome you home. You see, when I read the scriptures, I'm the boy with the demons at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where I relate. When I read the scripture, I'm the leper that needs to be healed. And I am grateful for the healing. When I read the scripture, I'm the woman caught in adultery. I was G Judas selling out for money because the world looks fun. And there might be more to it than I'm getting. I'm Peter denying Ju uh, Jesus because they might do the same thing to me that they did to Jesus. I'm the soldiers that put him on the cross because I don't recognize who he is and what power is right there in front of me. And I would rather live in fear than trust that doing what he said would bring me everything I want in my relationship to him. I was the other thief on the cross saying, why don't you get us both down if you're who you say you are? Why did you end up up here? And Toward the end here, I recognize that I'm the disciple scattering when it all hit the fan in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the Romans showed up, I ran away with the disciples. But I, because of what happened on Calvary, am a child of God. 